Welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. I am so excited to be here today, and I am so excited that my friend Britt Bolnick of In Arms Coaching is back with me today. But today, Britt is wearing a really different hat than usual. So if you've listened to previous episodes, you've heard Britt and I talking about time management for empaths, about just life and business as empaths, because she is an amazing business coach. But the thing you might not know about Britt is that she is also the founder of Pity Posse Rescue and the CEO of this amazing doggy daycare boarding facility, grooming facility called The Barkyard. And so Britt and I have been having a conversation probably for the last five plus years, but especially since Britt started, what, Pity Posse six years ago now? Yeah, coming up on six years. We've been talking about the interface between empaths and animal rescue. And so you guys get ready because this, hold on to your hats, because <laughs> this is going to be one hell of a conversation. So Britt, I am so excited and delighted to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And you're one of my absolute favorite people to talk to. So it's a great, it's a, great it's, it's a marriage made in heaven. It's <laughs> it an is. awesome, awesome thing. And so, you know, you and I have talked about how much both of us have observed. And you actually were the one who really commented about this in the first place about how you were really noticing how much empathic sensitivity is really such a challenge for so many people in rescue. So talk about this. Yeah, I mean, should we should we just jump right in? Because let's it's just not, let's okay. jump right in. So here's the thing. It's not just such a challenge for people in rescue, but people in rescue are most likely empaths. Yes. And that's what draws us to animal rescue, because the suffering and the plight of the animals that we're working with is so incredibly impossible for us to avoid understanding and feeling and seeing that we have to take action. So animal rescue is a field of empaths. And as such, we are also profoundly impacted by the work that we do because we feel it so strongly that we're here doing it in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Well, and something you are commenting about is that also there are a number of empaths who, I mean, there are a lot of empaths who relate to animals more easily than they can relate to human beings, that they've, especially if they've been through a lot of trauma, if they've been really hurt and betrayed by yeah. human beings, yeah. that animals feel like a safe haven. Mm -hmm. And so rescue becomes this place where they want to be connected to the beings that they can relate to. But then it also becomes kind of this vicious cycle because you were saying, as we were talking last night, about how it's like animal rescue also kind of you might not like people when you start animal rescue, but you really don't like people after you've been in it for a while. <laughs> yeah, this is something that that I've noticed personally is that as I and I've rescued for my whole life. So it's not like when we started Pity Posse, I was new to the world of rescue, but I hadn't had as much to do with the people in rescue before I owned my own rescue. And dealing with the human beings is something that just is ever increasingly harder for mm -hmm. me. Um, and and it, it definitely affects how I show up in my non-rescue circles because people just exhaust me so much more than they did before I started rescue. Absolutely. Well, and I have to say that I have been, as, as a friend of yours who gets to talk to you on a fairly regular basis, I've been floored, absolutely amazed at some of the stories that you have told me about some of the behavior mm -hmm. that is happening in the greater rescue world. Like, I think most people who don't have anything to do with rescue kind of imagine that rescue is this place where all kinds of wonderful people gather 
and where people who just really love animals and want to help animals are coming together and making life better for animals mm. and that it's just this wonderful oasis of animal love and solution. It's an amazing vision, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am all in for that. Unfortunately, that is absolutely not the case. And I think that we see you know, in rescue, we see a, a weird sort of self-selection of, yes, people who who find it easier to get along with animals and who sometimes love animals more and who understand the purity and the trust of a relationship with an animal over a human. But we also have people who are closer to animals than people because they don't trust them or because they have their own emotional challenges that makes it hard, make it hard for them to be around people. Um, we, we see people who have severe, you know, trauma. And, and just in general, find a human world difficult to get along in. So they not default, not default. They choose a life with more animals than humans. Um, and then you just have, you know, batshit crazy people. And the rescue world is absolutely, you know, got got a fair share of those. And the, I have to say, that was one of the things that when you first started telling me some of these stories, I was like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> And I mean, I guess what what occurs to me is that, I mean, certainly we all know about the crazy animal hoarders, the people who are just like, like they, I mean, they obviously love animals or they wouldn't have started bringing animals in and all of that. But I think we can sort of imagine those individuals. And I guess actually, as I think about it, it's almost like there's sort of a very fine line between animal hoarding and yeah. some of the people yeah. who end up doing especially kind of like their own private personal yeah. home rescue thing. Yeah, that's a really important line and a really important distinction. And I think the thing is, is that whether you're an empath or not, if you are going to do rescue in a success successful way that doesn't harm you or the animals you're trying to save your own oxygen mask has to be firmly on and that means that you need to be emotionally stable you need to be financially stable you need to have your own needs taken care of because otherwise what happens is you go over the line and you become a person who is rescuing animals potentially to the detriment of their well-being and absolutely to the detriment of your own well-being. Well, and you just said something that that again, you know, like you've raised the awareness in my mind in ways that I just had no idea before. But one of the things that you've talked about often is the fact that you have so many people whose empathic sensitivity is causing them so much distress about animals that they are basically taking food out of their own mouth, that they are, they are like, like foreclosing on their mortgages yep. that they, uh, but they, and they are going bankrupt, but they are basically not meeting their own basic needs. And they are pouring all of their money and their mm -hmm. resources into animal rescue when they are really not putting their own oxygen yeah. mask on first. Yeah. In order to help anything else, you have to be resourced. And that's a term that I love and I talk about all the time. Do you have the resources for yourself? And then do you have the resources to support another entirely dependent creature? You know, and lots of people start rescues because they want to help. And what they're not considering is, you know, that $18,000 bill for yes. parvo puppies yes. or, you know, the, the hundreds of pounds of dog food that you need a month or, you know, the regular vetting bills. We spend $2,500 at a drop on flea and tick preventatives Easily. every couple months, Easily. every couple months, Easily. Um, training, behavioral issues. Like there are just all these resources that you need in order to be able to help anything yes and they have to your well your cup has to be completely full and then you have to think about the resources that you additionally have for another dependent creature or 50 or 80 i mean i think that you know i'm thinking about a particular other rescue person who i i follow and how often they speak about the lack of sleep that they're getting, the emergency, like they go from one crisis and one fire to another. But it's interesting because I can really see how they are not putting on their own oxygen mask first. And they are frequently like they are doing amazing work in the world mm -hmm. for a particular breed. But at the same time, they are making themselves sick. And even like there was a point where they were sick with COVID and they just 
cannot mm. take a break. Mm. And they also do not have an infrastructure mm. because it's like them and their partner are the two primary people running mm. this thing from their compound. And they are in a situation where they are depleted. Yeah. You know, another thing I've noticed, because um, I'm not a stranger to rescue myself. I've been, I started in, you know, rescuing pugs mm -hmm. many, many, many years ago and actually briefly did a stint in being one of the people who was like a screening, you know, screening candidates for pug mm -hmm. rescue. So I've actually been around the world of rescue myself, not to the extent that you have. But one of the things that I've started noticing as I watched Rescue was another part of it is, it seems to me, and this is something I've noticed for empaths in general, is that when empaths are not self-regulating and our nervous systems are, are, are out of mm -hmm. sync, and we are really in a state of like emotional free fall, we cannot triage emergencies and we cannot distinguish between what is an emergency that needs our priority and our attention and what is an emergency that we need to sadly cut mm -hmm. our losses about mm -hmm. or say not my monkey not my circus and so one of the things i've noticed within rescue is the every single dog is like an emergency that needs attention and I'm sure that there are going to be people who are going to disagree with me about this. But for me, when I see somebody bringing in a 19-year-old dog with severe health issues that are clearly any vet would be like, this dog is on their way out, and then having a rescue group go, oh my God, we have to save Sadie so that she can have three months of life, but we need to raise $20,000 for this surgery so she can have her last three months in, lo in love. To me, I'm like, that $20,000 could like save four mm -hmm. or five parvo, parvo puppies. Mm -hmm. That $20,000 could be used for, um, you know, like, hip dysplasia surgery for a young five-year-old dog. And, and the thing is, at least from my perspective, it seems sometimes with rescue, there's a certain quality of there's not necessarily evaluating who are the viable rescues that our resources can go towards that actually like really is like you're using your money mm -hmm. towards something. Because I think the other thing is that a lot of people feel the urgency, feel the pain as empaths and then feel compelled to save absolutely yeah. every animal as opposed to being like, unfortunately, I can't save all of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we started with a very clear mission and a motto that was almost an anti-motto, which is we can't save them all. And that's our that's our, one of our guiding mottos. And it's it's a it's a very controversial position to take in the dog rescue world in this country yes. because there are huge, very, very powerful, very well-known organizations whose mottos are literally, we can save them all. And we have always operated from the fact that as a country, we are not set up, equipped, or able to, um, to save them all. But I think that what you're talking about also touches on something else that's really important, which is that, we, you know, in rescue, you have to examine where your motives are coming from. Yes. And there's a lot of martyr complex. There's a lot of savior complex. There's a lot of reactionary mode. And that's one of the reasons that when I started Pity Posse, I didn't start alone. I mean, I had my husband who I, I wouldn't have done it without him because um, I knew I couldn't do it alone. Mm -mm. But we also started a team from the very, very beginning. Yes. And we have gone through multiple iterations and the, the best people have stayed and the craziest people have gone crazy and left <laughs> um, quite literally sometimes. Mm -hmm. But we have a team. So we make decisions as a team. We check each other. There's always one rational person when everybody else is crying saying, well, let's think about it this way. And because it is a collective, it is a mission-based collective of people, when we do get into reactionary mode, which is usually a medical emergency, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we still make the decision as a team and we think about our resources. For instance, we will 100% bend over backwards, even if we know that we're helping a dog that might have a $20,000 medical bill. We will, however, think very cautiously about a severe behavior case. Yes. Because that's a resource question. We can absolutely pull money out of our butt through fundraising instantaneously. Can we find a good spot for a dog with a severe behavior issue? Is it the right thing to do? 
can we find a train for them? Probably not. Probably not. So we will think about that yeah. much more carefully. Yeah. Um, but but we're thinking about it as a team, and that pulls us out of reactionary mood, mode because there's always at least two of us who are saying, well, let's consider it from this angle. Yes. Well, and you're pulling out and talking about two incredibly important things about this. One is that you understood that you could not do a solo rescue mm -hmm. and that this was not a job for one single person. And sadly, there are a number of people who are in rescue who are not resourced yeah. or who do not yeah. have who are not networked, who do not have community. Mm -hmm. And God bless every empathic rescuer who is so sensitive that they don't really work well with people. Mm -hmm. One of the really big challenges with that is that the only way your rescue is going to survive is by getting money from other people yeah, because we live be in a money world based. and yeah. it has to be community based. But it's sort of almost the sort of the reason why I think some people go into rescue is because they don't love human beings. Right. But, but you got to be in relation because you yeah. have to work with humans to work with animals. And most animal professionals will tell you that it's the worst part of the job yes. is working with the humans. Yes. But we solve for that in the rescue. So for instance, you know, I'm very reluctant to get on the phone most of the time. Right. Do not want to get on the phone. We have several volunteers who specifically will just pick up the phone and call people. Yes. When we have something, when somebody calls, when somebody says I need to get on the phone, if someone needs to get on the phone with them, I have three of our people who are like, no problem, I'll call them right now and couldn't right. care less about it. Right. So we know we have people in the organization to do specific things. And most of them are things, all of them are things that I can't do or won't do or just don't have the time. Right, to do. right. The other thing that you were talking about, and I have this additional thought that's coming up with this. The other thing that you were talking about is the idea of we have to do our emotional work, mm -hmm. that in order to be able to do effective rescue, we cannot be in a reactive state. And I mean, if you've listened to many of my podcasts or read my book, you know that I'm constantly talking about the difference between responding and yes. reacting yes. and how incredibly important it is for us to be able to respond, but that you have so many people who are doing rescue mm -hmm. from reaction instead of yeah. response. And yeah. It's dangerous. It is it's dangerous. It's acutely dangerous. And I'll give a couple of different examples. Awesome. It's dangerous because if you're not resourced, you will find yourself in a hole that, you know, I know rescue workers who have gone into financial ruin, who have lost their homes, who have lost marriages and, and relationships with their children or their parents or their, their friends. But on the other end, I also know rescue workers who are so unresourced that eventually a mistake is made with an animal. Yes. And someone is hurt or an animal is hurt. Yes. And you can lose your rescue. You can be the object of a giant lawsuit. Um, you know, you can put people's lives at risk. Mm -hmm. And we're very conscious of the fact that we are working with a, you know, mixed breed genre that that does have some degree of prejudice against us. And we consider the dogs that we're turning into the community as as ambassadors. So, you know, we when we make a decision, we make it as a group and we make it from a place of looking at the highest good of the rescue. And the easiest example of that is when we have to do a behavioral euthanization. And we've done Probably six in six years, five or six. And our, you know, and, and it's it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. But and it is so necessary. It is so necessary. And I just want to say thank you yeah. because, you know, I've had a few conversations over the years um, with people who are in like veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. I attended a training at one point. I landed at a training, um, a dog training that turned out to be an advanced dog training about dogs with behavioral issues. I kind of happened to know what was happening and went to it as a workshop and then was kind of like, oh, wow, I'm in this place. But it was incredibly valuable because one of the things, this was a, a very advanced um, trainer who really talked about behavioral issues and talked about things to look for. What are the kinds of things that are like almost like non-negotiable? Mm -hmm. And when do you have to call it? Yep. When do you have to basically say, this is not repairable? And, you know, one thing, and I'll just say as a dog owner, and I mean, I am a seasoned pug owner. We've been, I mean, we're on our fifth pug. And I've have, I mean, I've definitely had my fair share of adapting and adjusting and dealing with rescue. We also have rescued most of our cats. What I will say is that people assume that they, by their nature, are just going to be able to like rescue a dog and be groovy. And the truth is that dogs require 
knowledge and understanding, Mm -hmm. and they require consistency. And they also require a great deal of energy and dedication. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, and especially this kind of leads me back to a thought I was having about just rescue is that I think a lot of people want to be part of the solution, but they have no real idea of what is involved in running a rescue. Mm. And so they decide to run the rescue from a place of reaction, from a place of urgency because their heart is Mm -hmm. breaking, but with very little understanding of if not, like maybe they understand animal behavior, maybe they understand how, you know, how to take care of dogs, but if they don't also understand the need for community, they don't also understand the need for financial resources mm-hmm. and a way to continue to get money to yep. come in, yep. that it is almost destined to fail. And it seems to me that this message is almost like an invitation to people to really question their motives of why are you thinking that you should start a new rescue, which also leads me to why not, if you really feel called to participate in rescue, participate. why not participate in an established system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where there, there are structures in place yeah. for raising money, for being resourced mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. Where you're a part of a team instead of right. trying to reinvent a wheel by yourself alone. Right. Going back to the behavioral thing, though, you know, what was so powerful about this workshop or class that I took was the awareness of the fact that there are some things that are just completely irrevocable and unfixable. And I do think as empaths, we sometimes get the, because we're so good at communicating with with many things, including animals, and we're often really good with animals in a way that non-empaths aren't, I think sometimes we have this fantasy that we could rescue a behavioral issue or an animal with behavioral issues and somehow just our love alone is going to fix it. And it won't. It won't. And it won't. It won't. I mean, and it's not always fair either. No, you it's know, not always fair. You're talking about an animal that is in that is stressed and is often anxious and is not having a good time. And that's one of the things we consider, you know, when we're Facing a behavioral euthanization, we consider, first of all, public safety. Yes. And the human safety. And we also consider the quality of life of the dog. Yes. Which is something that I think a lot of folks don't consider in the we sh- we can save them all. Like a dog in a cage in boarding for three years is better than the dog being put to sleep. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's true. And I think that suffering is a hundred times worth, worse than a peaceful death. Which I would rather deliver to an animal than have them suffer. I am I am so there with you. And I mean, some of it, I think, also has to do with perspective, spirituality Mm -hmm. and perception of Mm -hmm. what is death. Mm -hmm. And you and I both coming from a very woo background and very much an earth centered background. I think you and I both sort of regard life and death as a cycle that is that we participate in. And I certainly believe that there is more than just this lifetime in this incarnation. And so I think sometimes when we get caught up in this idea of like, oh, my God, I have to pour $25,000 into saving this 19-year-old dog mm-hmm. who has cancer and, and yeah. multiple issues, that we're not necessarily taking into consideration the bigger picture, the bigger picture and the fact that sometimes death is not the word, you know, death is not an insult it's, it's not, not it's not it's the not, worst thing that can no. happen it is the inevitable end that we all face and what we do have a choice on is or around is how that death happens i would rather that we take a dog for its best day ever to the beach and for a big mac and for a puppuccino and then it goes for a nap in its person's arms i would rather have that happen than have a dog bounced and bounced and bounced and people thinking that love is going to fix a behavior issue and potentially people getting bit in the process and then the dog being dragged off at the end of a catch pole after its sixth home with at each home it's getting more anxious and more heartbroken that to me is horrible mm-hmm, i would mm-hmm. much rather a humane euthanasia than that end yes yes and and just thinking about what we understand and know in regards to trauma but also about the idea of the sort of the collective trauma that gets sort of, you know, amplified and becomes exponential Mm -hmm. and expands. If you think about the difference between basically rescuing a dog from a life of misery, even if it means 
Big Mac and Puppuccino and going for a nap, mm. that is real that is not contributing to six years of continued trauma and misery Absolutely. into the collective of trauma that we have mm-hmm. as our in the Absolutely. world. I keep thinking about this woman many, many years ago. I had a client who was a like an advanced, like she was an oncology vet tech, very seasoned, like brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant, brilliant person, very knowledgeable about dogs, very, very knowledgeable about personalities. One of the first people who I knew who was a devotee to pities. And at a certain point after, like she had had, she had two pit bulls, one of them, she opted to euthanize. And it was at the time, she was the first person that I met who was like, this became a behavioral issue that was not fixable. Mm -hmm. Because what had happened with this dog was that they, as a puppy, they were lovely. As an adolescent, they were a little bit unmanageable. But around the age of like three, four years old, they started to become very aggressive with Mm -hmm. the other dogs around them. And they basically got to the point where this dog was just unprovoked attacking on a regular basis. And she basically said, it is clear that the genetic, like this dog had been genetically, like their genes were Mm -hmm. causing them to decline and decompensate Mm -hmm. the older they got and their behavioral issues. And this was a person who, this is not a dog who endured trauma. And right. who needed to be, yep. who needed, who needed to be like decompressed in rehab. This was a dog who had been brought into a loving home with a very, very seasoned dog owner mm-hmm. who understood the breed and who took no shit. Mm-hmm. And even with all of that, she watched this trajectory from a happy little puppy to an increasingly agitated and aggressive dog. An anxious, probably. Anxious dog, mm-hmm. very anxious. And mm-hmm. I think she even had them, I mean, because she was a vet tech, she's like, I think she even had the dog on Prozac. Mm-hmm. So she had tried all the other yeah. avenues and then just basically reached a point where she was like, I have to call this. Mm-hmm. It will not, it, it is not in my best interest. It is not in this dog's best interest. It is certainly not in the pack's best interest to try to pretend that this violence is not escalating and mm-hmm. this behavioral issue is outside of our capacity. Yeah. 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 I think that one of the things that this brings us back to is that if you're an empath working with animals, you have empath working with animals, you have to be doing your own work. You have you to be doing your own work. You have to be doing your own work yes. because it because you have to be growing and evolving as a human or you're going to make decisions from a place of reaction and yes. your own pain that don't benefit anybody around you, yourself included. Absolutely. Absolutely. So actually, as we're having this piece of conversation about you have to do your own work, let's talk about how do you do your own work? Like how do, what are the, well, some of the I strategies? Talk to you almost every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the first one was really to have a team. And, you know, even, even in the beginning, though we started with a the team, they were like the adoption coordinator, the foster coordinator. We very quickly, um, among our bigger team, we made a little team that we called like the inner circle or Mm -hmm, something. mm -hmm. And those were the people that I went to when I said, what do I do about this? Or this is a problem. So absolutely having your own counsel of other wise people who can give you perspective and help you see things more clearly and sound in. Yeah, that has been absolutely I couldn't have done it without that. Well, and what I'm really thinking as I'm hearing you say this is that for the people who go into rescue because they cannot tolerate human beings. It's not a good choice. It's not a good (laughs) choice. And unfortunately, it's like I get that you really, really, really want to help the animals. But if you cannot communicate with human beings comfortably without feeling an incredible amount of distress, the best thing you can do to help animals is actually help yourself to not be in a state of complete social anxiety and distress so that you can't even approach a veterinarian or you can't even approach a potential adopter or a funder. funder. Yeah, or a team member. Well, and was it you that was talking about, um, I can't remember if it was you or somebody else that was talking about or telling me about somebody in rescue who had become increasing, like they really had issues with people. So they had gotten super, super selective and just would not relinquish any dogs to anybody 
because they mm. kind of could not have a conversation that with is somebody. A thing that happens. Yeah. That is a thing that happens. And the other thing about humans is that, you know, one of the things that I have going for me is that in many ways, Pity Posse was started in a business model. Yes. And that has really, really helped. We branded from the beginning, which has been, I mean, people buy things with the Pity Posse logo to wear Pity Posse swag. And that is kind of not seen, other than things like Tia Torres and Villalobos and Pitbulls and Prolies, you don't see people buying branded things just to rock rescue gear. Um, so we started as a brand and we started with legitimate social media people who grew our brand on social media. But the thing that has really helped has been the people skills that I have, which admittedly are selective and not the best. I am really good at growing and managing teams of people yes. and communities. So I have been able to grow and love and nurture our teams. And our teams are what carry Pity Posse. And if you can't get along with people or you don't know how to put people in charge and trust them or how to foster your team's growth and evolution, it you're going to be back to a one-woman circus. And it's going to be an ugly one. And the monkeys will all be rabid and throwing their own poop at, at people. Yes. And, yeah. and the thing is, if you cannot, I mean, the thing about, you know, this actually reminds me of something that has been a really has been a growth process for me about understanding that as an individual person, when I sense the needs, I am not a charitable organization. And, you know, I mean, bear with me for a second, because I remember many lives being in the convents and the temples where all I had to do was get up, show up, like eat my gruel and then show up for a day of service where the people or the things were coming to me and I just had to do my work. Mm. There was no connection between work and money. Mm. I just woke up, did my work, and it was not a big deal. It was a rude awakening for me in this lifetime where I was like, what? I don't just get to wake up out of my bed in the temple and just go do the thing and be done at the end of the day and, and not have to worry about money. Other people are taking care of it. And so from that, I started to understand that I needed to run a business, but I was doing it in, uh, in, as a tattooer where it was easier to think of it as a business. But what's been fascinating is as I've moved back to more of a helping profession and more of a healing profession, I have had to re-navigate the part of me that is feels like it's my obligation to meet the needs of anybody that shows up. And it's my obligation to give it away for free to be a charitable organization. And it's only been really recently that I started to understand that charitable organizations have entire infrastructures set up to generate the resources that are needed to serve the population mm -hmm. that needs to be served. A business generally is serving, it's like a business is often ser like receiving the money from the population it is serving. Mm -hmm. Whereas a charitable organization is receiving money from a different set of people mm -hmm. and serving a different audience. But the thing is, money is coming into a charitable organization. To. And there is an infrastructure set up for all of these things to be run so that the salaried people who are providing the support to the humans or animals are getting their needs met. Yeah. What I see is a problem for actually not just rescuers, but many light workers, mm -hmm. is that we do not understand we only see the sir we only see mm. problem and service we do not see system and infrastructure that is needed to support and support. sustain it mm -hmm. and as long mm. as we are thinking of ourselves as a one person charity that then we're funding the charity from our job or whatever else it is we it is destined to fail because we are constantly taking our own oxygen mask off and giving it to everybody else mm -hmm. and not getting our needs met. And for me, this was revelatory when I was like, you know what? Charitable organizations still make money. They make a lot of money. A lot of money. You know, the idea of nonprofit doesn't mean that there isn't money generated. It's just that it is being like, it's about the way the money is 
is circulated and for what it is being mm-hmm. used. And that it comes in from one source and goes out to another. Yeah, it comes Versus in. a business where it comes in from one source and then. And then and delivers the to the right. same source. Mm-hmm. Like in a business, you've got almost like a circle mm-hmm. where it's like it's a closed system. Yeah. Charitable organizations and rescues in their best form are not closed mm-hmm. systems. They are actually open systems. And they also understand that there is a constant need for more resources. Yep. Because, I mean, especially when you're talking about animal rescue after the pandemic, where we have all of these extremely unsocialized animals, but especially unsocialized dogs mm-hmm. who are coming out, people are going back to work and they're like, oh my God, my dog is a spaz. I don't know what to do with him. Here, take my dog. Mm-hmm. That we're suddenly in this position where we're being inundated even more than we were before yep. with animals that are needing a lot of resources. And so it's a constant, there needs to be a constant influx of resources and money coming in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one person cannot make that happen. And one no. person doesn't have the skill set. In general, the person who will stay up all night nursing a sick animal does not have the skill set or the bandwidth to make sure that the money is coming in to pay for that animal. Well, and if you're staying up all night and nursing an animal, or if you are, you know, you have a, a pregnant, pregnant animal who is and you're whelping and you're just like going through the birthing mm-hmm. of an animal, You are not in the position to get up the next morning looking like a hot mess and begging people for money. I mean, go to work or go to work for the job. Yeah. Feed that dog. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. I mean, it's just such an incredible setup for failure. And that is absolutely something that I've seen within the rescue world is this thing of like, you know, five, you know, like they they spend they, they don't get any sleep. Because mm-hmm. they're dealing with a sick animal and then they're recording a reel earlier in the morning where they look like a train wreck and talking about how hard it is and just being like, hey, please give me money. There is a place for that, mm-hmm. for sure. But then on top of that, but that is rarely enough to mm-hmm. generate the kinds of resources that yeah, people absolutely need. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we always think at Pity Posse, we always think about how are we making this sustainable? We have huge visions. How are we making this sustainable and scalable? And what do we need in place to do that? And it sure as hell is not only my brain and my energy, because that is incredibly limited. No. Well, and you know, I was, I I, I was just thinking, I imagine in some ways that this particular interview is probably gonna really like polarize people (laughs) and that and that if you're listening to this and you've never thought about some of this stuff that this might be kind of controversial and kind of like you know like even piss you off because we're talking about limitations and Mm -hmm. we're talking about being realistic about Mm -hmm. what is involved in rescue and because so many people come into it from a place of emotional wounding, from a place of empathic urgency, and from a place of like something has to be done. And since I can't imagine there's anybody else out there who's doing something, I need to be the one to do it right now. That unfortunately, we, you know, it, it, the system is what it is right now. And you also have to be incredibly honest about whether or not it is a martyr situation that you set up to pour all your energy and focus into so that you don't have to look at your own stuff. Right. And that just has to be called out. There are too many people in the field of rescue that are using their insanity as a reason to not look at their own stuff. Absolutely. Ultimately, the animals will suffer. And it's not like I'm, you know, probably better than anyone other than my husband and my child that I'm not perfect. But I look at my own stuff. You do look at your own stuff. And it is a part of my process. Yeah. And I don't, I check myself very carefully for when I'm stepping into savior complex or martyr complex. Well, and you also really do. I mean, like when you're not sure, I have certainly had conversations with you where you're like, is this my bullshit or is Mm -hmm. this? And and like, and I'm not afraid to say to you, Britt, you need to back the (laughs) truck up because I do think you're reacting here. And I do think you are. You are seeing this through a distorted lens of trauma or you're triggered and you're like, you do not need to go in with your dukes up here. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Everybody needs someone to say, I think you're wrong. Yeah. I think 
I think you might want to look at that again. Well, and, you know, Katie Gall and I were having a conversation the other day as we were recording an episode. Um, we were recording this episode about ADHD, and which was just incredible. And we were talking about this phenomenon within the spectrum of ADHD, which is um, rejection sensitivity mm. dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think I actually think, and there's a very fine line between people with sensory processing disorder with people who have ADHD and empaths, like, you know, empaths oh, are overlap. in the neurodiverse. We, we are in the neurodiverse category, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that often empaths, whether we have ADHD or not, I think we often also suffer from rejection um, sensitivity dysphoria. And the thing about that is when you are not resourced and you've never had an opportunity to do your work, and especially if you've got rejection sensitivity dysphoria and you're afraid of being ashamed for looking at your stuff, it makes it very, very hard to go and get a reality check mm -hmm. because shame comes up yeah. anytime somebody says, you know, maybe that wasn't such the, wasn't the swiftest idea here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard work. It is it absolutely is. hard work, but I feel like if you love the animals, whether or not you love yourself, if you love the animals, you owe it to them to really be careful about how you move into and through the world of rescue. Um and you know, if you really do love animals and you want to make a big difference, then it makes sense that you do what you need to do to sustain and feed yourself so that you can be around to make a difference you know, and to, to take a bigger picture for, for the change that you want to see in the world that you want to be a part of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about an example of somebody where rescue became the catalyst for their own healing, where instead of them just mm -hmm. sort of being batshit crazy and imploding, they can't, I believe they came into rescue because they had so much trauma and so many wounds. But what's been interesting in watching this person's experience is that the rescue kind of brought out their trauma, mm -hmm. but instead of it being that they kept on avoiding their trauma and avoiding their pain and doubling down on rescue do sort of go into the insanity of rescue and stepping away from it, actually what has happened is they have realized they need to do their mm -hmm. own work. Mm -hmm. And in their case, they stepped away from rescue mm -hmm. because they realized that it was too traumatizing yeah. to be watching and to be watching these scenes of with their history of a great deal of abuse mm -hmm. and abandonment, to be seeing these dogs going through the same thing yeah. they went through in their childhood over and over again. Yeah. And actually, decision. and actually, I'd like to really offer that to anybody who's listening to this and you have a history of abuse, you have a, you have a, a history of trauma. And you have decided that the way you're going to work this through is by going into rescue, but you've not done your personal work on this. Chances are what's going to happen is that every single animal you find is going to reflect the hell you went through. Mm -hmm. But if you do not deal with your own hell and you do not deal with your own wounds, what's going to happen is you're going to be triggered and activated and then you're going to be forming conclusions mm -hmm. and making many decisions based not on your resourced adult state, but more on your extremely wounded, very reactive, like inner child mm -hmm. who's like somewhere between the ages of like two and probably six. And, and at the mercy of this is an animal. At the mercy of this is an animal who you want to help. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I've said this so many times about empaths is that I don't like to think of empaths as codependent because I feel like there's that there's it's a disservice to why we want to rescue. Mm. We want to help other people, other animals, the planet, all of these things. We want to rescue other people and other beings and other environments like everything that is is expressing distress and is, is expressing pain because as highly sensitive empathic people especially when we do not know how to sit with our own pain what happens is we get flooded by the pain that is coming from the world outside us and because it is so uncomfortable to have the pain inside us activated and triggered what we then do is we rush to rescue because we feel better when the situation feels better. 
And so it creates this cycle of feeling compelled to rescue and save because we get the temporary relief of feeling better. Except that the problem, particularly with like animal rescue and I would say probably like climate change and a number of and like racism and sexism is that we are talking about a systemic problem that is so large that you can easily, easily, like you might see the dog that is drowning in the whirlpool and feel the need to go jump into that, like that, that whirlpool of hell. But the next thing you know, you are getting sucked down by that Mm -hmm. whirlpool and you are going down with it. Mm -hmm. Which is why you can't rescue without your own life preserver or oxygen mask. Right, right. So you spoke about how, you know, Having a team Mm -hmm. is your absolute first priority in terms of self-care with rescue. And, you know, unlike just empathic rescue and how do we take care of ourselves, it's interesting that, you know, usually I'm talking about the first step to empathic mastery is just recognizing what's yours and what's not yours. I love how what you're basically saying is in order to create rescue that's going to be effective and functional, a team is the absolute first priority. Yeah. yeah. And and that does bring us to, in some ways, you have to do the empathic mastery work Absolutely. so that you are able to invite a team in yeah. as your pri- and, and make it your first yeah. priority. I mean, there's a first step actually before that, which yeah. is really just understanding that your own well-being and self-care has to be prioritized. And that's why I had it. That was inherent in my decision to have a team mm-hmm. that I can't be the only person that I need eight to 10 hours a night of sleep and I'm not compromising on them, that I won't get on the phone, that I don't always know the best answer and that I need support. That was implicit in the establishment of a team. Um, and and I would say that even, you know, in order to set up the self-care You have to have boundaries. You have to have healthy boundaries. You have to have healthy boundaries. And you also have to be able to ask for help. And that's something that I really, and accept it, (laughs) you know, and that is something that I really appreciate about you is your ability to cultivate community and also to put it out there and say, I have this need who can help me Mm -hmm. with it. And if you're carrying around a lot of empathic wounds, if you're carrying around a lot of just traumatic wounds, these things are almost can be next to impossible. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I hope as you guys are listening to this, you're realizing like, oh, maybe I shouldn't set up that breed rescue because I have a love for this breed and really start thinking about like, like backpedal into, are you emotionally stable enough? Are you emotionally healthy Mm -hmm. enough? Mm -hmm. Are you really ready? Like, and the other thing I just love that you were saying that just keeps coming to my mind is like, recognizing your strengths Mm -hmm. and recognizing your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. No human being is like a Renaissance person Mm -hmm. who has every single skill. We all have our wheelhouses and we all have the things that we absolutely suck at. And when it comes to rescue, it is too, there are too many tasks involved in rescue for and skill, some, sets. and skill sets for somebody to be able to manage them all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's another part of it is like, I think people just think, well, if I just started or if I just build it, they will come. But it's sort of like, if you keep on thinking you're going to be able to handle every single task that is before you with this. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, Mm-mm. not happening. No, And you have to build it first. You have to have it in place because animal rescue is a flood. So if you don't have things set up before you start, you're not going to get them set up after it starts. Right. You're just going to get more and more underwater. Well, and as you're saying it, it's like you got to have if you're going to go rescue people from the flood, you got to have a boat. Yep. Like you cannot go wading into the water with like a life jacket on. Figure it out when you and figure it out when you get to the people. It's Mm -hmm. like you need a boat and you need supplies and you need resources and you need to be ready and have Mm -hmm. a plan. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you who are the rescuer can easily become a burden to the system. This is actually part of my message about if you do not deal with your empathic distress as an empath, you are contributing to the problem by amplifying the distress that is in this world. 
And only by dealing with your own distress can you start focusing on the solution instead of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if you just go walking into rescue with no resources, no tools, and just a desire to help, you're going to be another one of the hungry, drowning victims. Mm -hmm. You are not going to be part of the solution. Yeah. And I do think that this goes into the martyr complex, the savior complex, and also sometimes the, I don't want to look at my shit, so I'm going to distract myself with this major, major crisis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've got a few minutes left with this conversation. It's amazing how quickly time flies by in these incredible conversations. I would really love to hear, so we've talked about, we've talked about the Surround, you know, knowing yourself, establishing, like recognizing what are your strengths and Mm -hmm. weaknesses, creating community around you, having boundaries and knowing your limitations and like what you need. Like for Mm -hmm. you, example, for example, you need eight to 10 hours of sleep every single night. What are the other self-care tools that as a rescuer, you are like, these are my go-tos. I absolutely need them. They're Mm -hmm. non-negotiables. Yeah. Tools for stress. Absolutely. I can't have a lot of stress in my life. So I have a lot of tools for negotiating it down and even stepping back when I see it impending. Mm-hmm. Good food is really, really important to me. I think my husband and I talked about this. We spend more money on food than anything other than our mortgage. And that is A-OK with me. Yeah. Um, really good food. And then laughter. You have to be able. Laughter is the magic that you know, that battles the absolute despair of rescue. Absolutely. So laughing and being in nature and doing things to take care of myself and Mm -hmm. being with good friends and having sounding boards, all of those are imperative tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. Um, So laughter, what are your favorite ways to laugh? What are the ways that you can, you can (sighs) find laughter? It's so silly, but right now I'm just on a major TikTok bender. Mm -hmm. There are just a couple people on TikTok that I will just hit, you know, the the replay button over and over again and just laugh till I pee myself. Um, funny movies, hanging out with my daughter, who's mm-hmm. really, really funny. She is. Um, she is. Yeah, she is awesome. She, she is witty and she wry. Is really, really witty. Um, and just doing stupid things with my husband, just making each other laugh and making sure that we have time to connect. We do a nightly, um, almost nightly beach walk after dinner. And that's just our time to like, be in the ocean water and talk to each other and laugh and plan. Um, And then I think the other thing that's really important is the overall vision of the rescue that gets us out of the day to day. And this is what we want to see. This is the change that we want to see. This is our five year goal. You know, many rescues just operate to sort of take homeless animals and put them in homes. Mm -hmm. And we have a much bigger vision than that. And that really helps me come out of the day-to-day and really remember what's important and prioritize. So I'm really hearing, like, you, like, being driven, like, your sort of guiding North Star is your, is your like, your big why. Mm-hmm. And that always returning to that big why mm-hmm. and understanding how vital that is. Mm-hmm. So I want to circle back to your comment about stress management and having tools for stress. You just said having tools for stress. I need Mm -hmm. more specific information than that. Just like the simplest meditation. I mean, I have like insight timer on my phone. Mm -hmm. I'll just plug it in. Um, Sitting, uh, hugging a tree is really, really good and so instantaneous. And there are very few people among us, unless you're incarcerated, who don't have access to a tree in every day in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Laughter is a really good one. Epsom salt baths, if I can't get in the ocean, because we have so much ocean here, but it's so damn cold, it's hard for me to get into. Um, So Epsom salt baths, EFT, always. Um, I've done work with you over the years. I also just have like quickie videos that I can just put on. Um, What else? Snuggling with my dog, napping herbs i know reading is one of your favorite things too like just like stepping away and picking up a book yeah just reading a book and buttered popcorn with nutritional yeast is my drug of choice Mm -hmm. that combo Mm -hmm. is my that is is your go-to to to Mm -hmm. unplug well and you know you were saying the other day as we were talking about like you know taking space and taking time for yourself Mm. 
is one of the things that you and I have been talking a lot about for years, like Mm -hmm. how incredibly important it is to take time for yourself and that you as, you know, now you have an adult uh, or not adult, but nearly adult daughter who is capable of, you know, feeding herself, cleaning herself, clothing herself, going actually to work for herself. Like she's capable of functioning now. But when she was a very needy toddler who needed to be on your body pretty much 24-7 when you weren't working as a bartender, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, what you had said was, like, all you could carve out was 60-second increments of time to go into Into the bathroom. bathroom And lock the door and light a candle. Yeah. And that was what I started with, 60 seconds. 60 seconds. anybody can take... 60 seconds for themselves. Anybody so. can take 60 seconds for themselves. So it's a great place to start with. Can yeah. you stop what you're doing for 60 seconds, sit in the dark, light a candle, close your eyes? Right. Right. That's it. Right. Just just find a place, go put yourself somewhere, and stop. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we live in a culture right now where so many people are like, well, I can't. And I'm like, start with what you can do. And you have to choose it. It's very easy for us to all say, I can't. You know, back in New York City, I was thinking, why did I say a dark bathroom? I lived in New York City. It's frowned upon to stand on on the street corner and hug a tree. So I lived in New York City. So it was 60 seconds in the bathroom in the dark with a candle. Now it could be 60 seconds with your bare feet on the earth or hugging a tree or just lying on your bed. Every one of us can. There is nobody who can't. Right. We choose not to. Well, and even if you are incarcerated, You know, you can still and I mean, unless you are in solitary and you are in a room with absolutely no windows and absolutely nothing, you know, you can look up at the sky, you can put your feet on the ground outside. And, you know, even if you are if even if you are in a cubicle, a closed room with no access to anything like any scene of nature you can still send your roots down through yep. the many layers of concrete. You, you can send your, your roots down to the earth. You still have your mind to work yep. with and you can go, you can connect to the earth. Yep. You know, we were in, I was in Manhattan, uh, God, a couple years ago now with my one of my other dear, dear, dear friends and her two daughters and son. And we had been wandering around Manhattan all day. Actually, it it had been a couple days that we'd been wandering around. And um, we got to Central Park and it was like me and the two girls just made a beeline for the tree, Mm -hmm. the nearest tree. And there's this photograph of the three of us just (laughs) hugging the tree because we were just like, ah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you are in a position where it feels like, oh, my God, I do not want to be seen as a tree hugger. I will just say that all you need to do is like if you're not comfortable with the idea of hugging a tree, like if that's a little too woo or weird for you or you're like you're going to feel like a a hippie, put the palm of your hand Mm -hmm. on the tree and just feel the tree and connect to it and breathe and breathe with the tree. Like just connect because trees know how to be grounded in a way that we have forgotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Britt, it is amazing. We are coming to the top of the hour. I could talk with you about all this stuff for hours. And we do. And we do. (laughs) So how can people get in touch with you and Pity Posse? Yeah, so pityposse.com, P-I-T-T-I-E-P-O-S-S-E. We have a huge presence on Facebook and Instagram. Um, There might even be a TikTok channel right now. I'm not sure because I'm not the one who does it which is amazing team team um, yep. you guys see you, somebody else doing the work exactly that i don't even know about if you are interested in dog training or daycare boarding and you live in maine you can go to the barkyard maine um or just look us up on uh facebook we also have a facebook page and you can always shoot me an email at brit at inarmscoaching.com you know and the other thing i just want to make a plug for is brit's book mm-hmm. the magic Thank of bending you. time because so much of what we are talking yes. about is about being deliberate with your time being realistic about what your skills are, what your wheelhouse is, what you are good at and what you are not good at. And setting healthy boundaries. And setting healthy boundaries. So Britt, is, this has been an amazing conversation. You guys, um, fear not. If you didn't catch the URLs as they whipped by, they will be in the show notes. And... Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Oh my God, this was amazing. Just amazing.
Oh, and you guys, if you're in the main area and uh, you're feeling called, like give bit, you know, consider becoming a foster for Pity Posse. Mm -hmm. Consider like and also consider adopting. But the other thing is, you know, even if you're not in resourced or in a position to contribute to rescue, you know, to run a rescue or do a rescue or even like volunteer for a rescue, you know, even like three dollars can make a huge difference. Or hitting difference. the share button. Or hitting on a the dog share that we're button. Trying to get adopted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hitting the share button. So please, if you are listening to this podcast, share it with all of the animal lovers you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Britt. Thank you. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery Show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.